From discussions about intimacy to the surveillance of publics, we will bring you ideas and speakers that question how digital elements are transforming our everyday lives. Welcome to the Global Digital Cultures Podcast. Welcome everyone to this webinar on programmed racism organized by the Global Digital Cultures at the University of Amsterdam. My name is Lonneke van der Velde and I'll be moderating this event together with Monica Baptiste and Victoria Andersman-Alvarez. They will be facilitating the participation in our online channel. And we focus on how technologies mediate racism and what we can learn from a global perspective and post-colonial approaches. We will also hear about possible research interventions in response to this issue. And to get the discussion going, we have three great speakers. We have Senai Gebriab, Payal Aurora and Lynette Taylor. Sinette Gebriab is a social professor of neuroinformatics at the University of Amsterdam and scientific director of the Civic AI Lab, which is a center for community mind design and development of AI. And Payal Aurora is professor and chair in technologies, values and global media cultures at the Erasmus School of Philosophy at the Erasmus University in Rotterdam and author of the book Next Billion Users. Lynette Taylor is our third speaker. She is a social professor at the Tilburg Institute for Law, Technology and Society at the University of Tilburg, and she's leading the Global Data Justice Project. Global Digital Cultures, in short, is focusing on the social and cultural changes brought about by digitization across the globe. There are three main themes, which are consumption and participation, production and labor, and security and citizenship. You can look at our website if you want to know more, and there's also the option to register for our newsletter. Global Digital Cultures will organize several events around the theme of programmed inequalities. As a first way into this theme, our speakers of today are asked to present their perspectives on racism and discrimination in relation to computational technologies. The speakers first get a chance to present and then to respond to one another. And after that, we will open the floor to the audience. Our first speaker is Senai. He is not only an expert on AI and facial recognition technologies, he is also founder of an initiative for Civic AI, which has a critical and inclusive approach to this matter. Senai, we are happy to hear your thoughts. Thank you. Uh, thank you for organizing this event, also for having me here. I was asked to give a short presentation on historical and contextual perspectives on racial bias in AI and algorithmic uh, systems. So I will do so, focusing on biased facial recognition, digital iconoclasm. This is part of a essay that I have recently written and which will be published in a few weeks from now. So digital iconoclasm. The world suddenly came to a standstill this year uh, due to the corona pandemic. But just as suddenly it was set in motion again by the death of uh, black American George Floyd, who, as most of you will know now, died during his arrest after a white policeman held him to the ground and pressed on his neck for minutes. This was a kind of the last straw. After decades of racial inequality and police brutality, black and white Americans protested en masse, and they were joined by people in other parts of the world. In a way, and to some extent, white heroes of the past were taken off their pedestals during this protest. In the shadow of this, a digital iconoclasm also arose in science. Datasets of images used by scientists and engineers all over the world to develop image recognition technology were removed. For example, MIT in Boston took the database 80 million tiny images offline last June. 
In a public statement, MIT acknowledged that the data set was too one-sided and contained all sorts of biases and stigmatized and prejudiced certain population groups. This goes against the values we pursue and harms efforts to promote a culture of inclusiveness, MIT wrote. Immediate cause for this digital iconoclasm was the scientific publication of image processing technology Pulse. And this system, developed by scientists at Duke University in the US, makes it possible to generate a realistic high-resolution photo of a person based on grainy images of that same person. So users can, for example, use it for getting sharp pictures taken with old low-resolution cameras. To develop the model, Duke scientists used Flickr HQ, high quality. This is a data set with mainly pictures of white people. Pulse therefore works well for grainy photographs of white people, but for grainy pictures of black people, it generates high quality white versions of these black people. For example, a user showed how grainy pictures of former President Obama or actor Samuel L. Jackson and boxer Muhammad Ali resulted in white men resembling them. Pulse has led to a fierce debate between two leading scientists, Timnit Garou, a black AI scientist and AI ethics leader at Google, and the French AI pioneer, professor, and winner of the Turing Award, the Nobel Prize in Computer Science, Jan Lecun, who is now head of AI at Facebook. In response to Gabru, who called the Obama photo an example of the dangers of AI bias, Lecun claimed on Twitter that AI systems are biased when data is biased, and that biased data sets are not the problem of AI scientists, but of AI engineers. And with this, Lacoon pushed the problem of biased AI off the scientific table. And the result was a Twitter void that was so intense that at some point Lacoon decided to uh, close his uh, account. Now, how did it get this far? And, and, and do we solve the problem of biased AI technology with digital iconoclasm? Face recognition technology has been developed and used for almost two decades, even more than that. The technology uses algorithms that learn to recognize distinctive biometric facial features, such as distance between the eyes or the length and the shape of lips, based on sample pictures or videos of faces. It's in fact just like the French criminologist Alphonse Bertillon did at the end of the 19th century, to recognize criminals based on photographs that he collected. But now algorithms extract thousands of different facial features from millions of facial examples. And distinctive facial features are then converted into a computer representation of a face that is used for a wide range of applications. For example, for automatic detection of a face in a photo or video. This makes it possible to, for example, quickly determine whether a photo or video contains a person. Or to compare two faces. Is it the same person? This allows, for example, someone to be traced through different cameras in the city without necessarily knowing who it is. It is also possible to compare faces with other faces in a database for identification of a person. For example, the police uses this application to try to identify an unknown person. The development of facial recognition technology took off following the attacks of September 11 in New York. Shortly after, the city installed thousands of cameras in the public space to detect potential terrorists. Other cities, such as Chicago and San Francisco, followed. Soon, data analysts were unable to process the immense amount of image data generated by these cameras in cities. So a few years later, the cameras were linked to video surveillance technology that automatically recognizes faces and tracks people. For example, the city of New York, in collaboration with Microsoft, developed the domain awareness system which links 9,000 cameras in different neighborhoods of the city in order to track or locate suspicious persons. Uh, throughout America, tens of millions of smart cameras now monitor citizens. But in May 2019, San Francisco was the first to ban the use of automatic facial recognition in the public domain. 
The neighboring city of Oakland soon followed, and in December 2019, San Diego also suspended its facial recognition program, just before a statewide law declared automatic facial recognition in public illegal. Other cities or states have not yet banned automatic facial recognition, as far as I know at the moment, but are about to do so or strongly regulate its use. And now that institutional racism has entered the public consciousness, even the American tech giants like Amazon, IBM, and Microsoft have put the brakes on the development of facial recognition technology. Amazon plans to make it controversial recognition technology, which is used by police, unavailable to police forces for a year. And IBM will stop using automatic face recognition altogether. All kinds of measures are also being taken here in, uh, in Europe and the Netherlands as well against the use of automatic facial recognition by companies, uh, governments, and so on. The growing measures against facial recognition are based on two different concerns. First is the concern that this technology does not work properly and fairly. And the second is the fear, increasing fear, that this technology would work too well and too fairly. I will explain in a moment. The first concern stems from the growing number of misidentification of people based on uh, facial recognition technology. People have been wrongly arrested, convicted, and imprisoned, as has happened to American Steve Telly. Steve Telly was mistaken for a bank robber and arrested on the basis of facial recognition technology. Even worse than misidentification may be the fact that time and again it appears that facial recognition technology disadvantages one population group more than the other. To begin with, the errors made by facial recognition technologies are not equally distributed across population groups. African-Americans and Asian faces are misidentified up to a hundred times more than white faces, partly and perhaps predominantly because the data sets used to train the algorithms are not representative. In addition, and especially in the US, facial recognition technology is used on those population groups where facial recognition technology makes the most mistakes, such as black Americans. Unfair technology and unfair use of that technology doubly disadvantage people of color. The second concern is that facial recognition technology works too well or, or is too fair. This was especially apparent after Clearview AI, US company, trains its facial recognition algorithms on billions of faces picked from social media platforms such as Facebook and, uh, and Instagram. The company claimed that its technology could recognize anyone, regardless of origin, and everyone was suddenly equally recognizable. Men, women, black, white, poor, rich, and so on. Black American men have always been hyper-visible, as American law scholar Patricia Williams writes. According to her, black Americans have been trapped between regimes of invisibility and hypervisibility for centuries. With invisibility, she refers to the poor black people who were systematically excluded by police, and the hypervisibles are the black American men who live under constant control in big cities like New York, Chicago, and San Francisco. With Clearview AI, everyone suddenly became hypervisible. Even people who had always managed to stay out of the picture because they were rich and powerful, or simply because they belonged to privileged groups that are never or hardly suspected. For those people, Clearview AI technology is overly fair, or can be uh, considered overly fair. Unfair and overly fair facial recognition technologies have become mainstream technologies over the past 20 years and are now slowly reaching public consciousness. And the result is 
public outrage and a call for a ban on automatic facial recognition, but isn't removing data sets or banning facial recognition technology a, a pseudo solution or even a distraction so that other AI technologies can be further developed outside of public attention and scrutiny. Think of the uh, algorithms, recruitment algorithms that are used by Amazon, were used by Amazon, the disadvantaged woman, uh, or think of nanotechnology, biotechnology, neurotechnology, all data-driven technologies that have been developed and applied for years now. I believe that now AI technology is permeating society, we should invest in a culture of cooperation and co-creation. AI scientists and technology developers should not shirk uh, the social implications of technology they are developing. And the same holds for social scientists and scientists from the arts and humanities. They should not shy away from AI and data technology development, as I too often uh, still experience. They should embrace it and contribute to it. I think we should transcend our own discipline and work interdisciplinary, socially diverse, socially aware, together with policymakers, civil society, and so on. This is what I would like to present to you and looking forward to your questions and discussion after this. Okay, thanks, Sanai. We will keep our questions for later and now move to Payal. Payal has done research into biometric surveillance systems in, uh, in India. Payal, can you share your insights with us about the working of databases in relation to discriminatory practices and maybe also your general thoughts about technological bias? Sure. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me here. And I'm uh, really thrilled to see the number of people made the time carved space for this kind of conversation, particularly early in this week. So, all right. You know, I'd like to use this time to talk about my problem with the term programmed racism itself. And while the intent is well-meaning, I think the problem with the framing is extraordinarily dangerous because just in terms of the term programmed, it connotes a very restrictive way in which we can look at technological systems, which means it's the finished product. And it, you know, it sort of eliminates or it negates the vast majority of technical systems, which as Nizabom calls it as emergent forms, which then highlights the complicity of the social systems within which you're embedded, the context within which you're embedded, which allows the social cultural elements to take a play, right? So systems can be neutral, but it is in constant motion as it's being interacted upon. And through those forms, it can become more maybe racist, it could become less, and that all gets missed with a sort of programmed term, right? But I would like to focus on the other term, which is even more important, is racism as a key lens to highlight systems of exclusion and inclusion. How can we change that paradigm? The concern is very important, and however, it does miss a very important thing is that the intersectionality of marginalization, which, you know, compounds and amplifies certain forms of discrimination over others when we take into account class, gender, uh, religion, and a variety of other forms. And I will argue it is in deep sense, very Americanized framing. And let me go a little bit into it. In fact, a recent book, right, called Cast the Lies that Divide Us by Isabel Wilkerson, right? It came out in August. Oprah Winfrey tweeted about it, and now it's like blown up. She's a Pulitzer Prize winning 
writer and indeed the book is very nuanced and I do agree on one premise is that she offers caste as a way to actually look at race and not race because she says if race is a language of discrimination, caste is a grammar, which is basically highlighting the structures within which racism as a tool, which is basically anointing value arbitrary to something as skin, which actually has no meaning until meaning is given by a certain small elite group based on a system of exclusion, right? I agree with that absolutely. In fact, you know, I understand and I appreciate the emphasis on structure. However, when asked and when pushed about how does gender and class complicate these conversations, she said, well, you need to look at this, that caste is the bones, race is the skin, and class is the clothing. Okay, again, caste as the bones, so it's an innate thing, race as a skin, and class is the clothing. And she said, if you can act your way out of it, it is class. If you can't, it is caste. Now, I, I have to now unpack this a bit because this is extraordinarily problematic because class actually, I would actually flip it because if you look at, and if you go by her logic of, you know, uh, these tools of discrimination and parsing of people, Indeed, that race, just like religion or any kind of sort of social institutional fabrications, have been used for empire building. You look at the colonial times where much of, you know, the accumulation of wealth has, been look, has looked to rationalize the way in which they can justify, you know, a concentration of wealth in a small group of people and almost naturalize and normatize it, right? So if you look at going into India, the British looked at the existing Hindu caste system and decide to create a new kind of interpretation because again, that term caste comes from the Hindu term caste, which goes back 2000 years, which predates a lot of this, right? And in the main texts like Mahabharata and you know, the Bhagavad Gita, it is actually about, caste is about content and character and not about the birth. And it is reinforced by Ambedkar, who is one of our leading thinkers and philosophers in India, you know, of the past, who emphasizes that this has actually been sort of recolonized in a way in which to sort of allow the divide and rule colonial policy to really effectively take its place. If you see also the meaning of divides, it often plays out in very different ways. For example, if you look into the Middle East, it's often not about skin. Uh, it is about religion as a dominant factor. If you look at what's happening in India, uh, I would say a lot of it is about class, about it's compounded with gender. In fact, gender is an extraordinarily heavy weight and criteria that is sieving these systems and influencing how people get discriminated on. So just to give you a sort of linking it with technological systems, Right, uh, you have now currently the government, and this is part of actually a project I've got, which is called Feminist Approaches to Labor Collectives, FemLab. And we are looking at the sanitation side as well as a few others, and particularly on low-income communities. And in the sanitation side, basically, the Indian government has thought it is a good idea to put, to have the cleaners, you know, the street cleaners wear watches, 
which can track their every move and datafy them. And if they are not visible and not accessible, then their salary is docked. And remember, these people are in extraordinary precarious conditions. And oftentimes, and majority of them happen to be women and compounded with this Dalit, so, which is of the lowest so-called caste, right? So these complexities you know, uh, are very different because these systems are not in place for, say, upper caste women. Of course, it's of a different form, maybe of informal monitoring or formal sort of the social pressures of monitoring where your wife or sister goes, et cetera, but not in these kinds of technological systems. So you can have a system being used and played out in very different ways. You can have a system that actually empowers certain groups of people within the same country, as well as disempowers certain kind of groups based on how it's used, based on how you instrumentalize it for what it, right? So anyway, so I, I feel like we are all on the, we, we're all wanting the same thing as you want to look at underlying systems of exclusion and inclusion. But I think it's really essential that we start to broaden these parameters beyond the American context of what's going on right now. Because while that is very important, what I am very afraid of is that race becomes a dominant characteristic. And in, if anything, even in I, from the conversations that are going on in the global south, there's a certain sense of superiority in their culture that look at the Americans. They are so divided and we actually support them. And this is also, you know, you see this in India. They're like, we really support. And people are like, hang on, aren't you like advertising this whitening cream? So, because they're like, yeah, race doesn't, this is not our issue, you know, we don't do race because we're not racist because this doesn't exist in India, right? And this kind of can actually close a conversation which is very important. And so I really believe we need to have a sort of global perspective to these conversations and broaden it in terms of systems of inclusion and exclusion, which are not fixed or not complete because it's never is, right? because we need to be within a politics of hope, which means that it is a you know, iterative process as Echi Sene himself is doing, is that the whole idea is for this kind of public and stakeholder engagement is that you hope these systems as we play with it in a way can transform in ways which are meaningful and enhancing for all of humanity, right? And with that, I will uh, stop. Thanks. Thanks, Payal. Very happy you bring this in. After Lynette, we can also couple back to uh, Senai because the Civic AI Lab is integrating intersectional approaches into an AI. So I think we have an interesting discussion uh, there. Uh, Lynette, your research at the Global Digital Justice Project helps us to bring in a global perspective. You have studied data monitoring systems in different environments, or at least you have some thoughts about the various aspects involving the construction of these systems and the implications of these systems. So please share your insights with us. Thanks. So of course, it's a challenge to try to translate between these two levels of vision, one of which is sort of a country level and another of which is the global level. And on our project in, in the Global Data Justice Project, we try to look at the ways in which tech sort of reproduces and amplifies injustice across different regional and country contexts in order to get insights about exactly the things that Senai and Payal have been discussing just now. We sort of look for what Gus Hussain once called moments of interest, moments where the technology speaks for itself, as he says. 
So moments that involve technology which spark demands for justice and which have the potential to maybe create changes in the way tech and the world are regulated and governed. So one of the things that we're looking at is the way that lower income countries and lower income populations around the world are being used as basically lab rats to develop tech, including AI, that then gets scaled up to the global market and gets translated into different places to perform different tasks. So there's already this established culture of technological experimentation on refugees and migrants and recipients of welfare programs. If anyone's read Virginia Eubanks's book, she does a very good job of analyzing that in the US. But this is actually a global thing. This has scaled up over the last five years because there's so much money in the AI industry at the moment. And we're seeing a lot of market making by firms based primarily in high-income countries, in hubs of technological and geopolitical power. And that tech being tested and used on the beneficiaries of humanitarian action, for instance, and on refugee and migrant populations around the world and on the global poor. So none of this is new. I mean, James C. Scott described this when he wrote Seeing Like a State 20 years ago. The way that social systems and production systems are optimized to serve the interest of the powerful and people are moved around to serve the interests of the powerful. But now technology vendors around the world have kind of internalized this logic and they're optimizing for the interests of not just states, but also the technology industry itself. So this is a really interesting way to approach the debates that are landing in certain places as debates about technology and racism. And as Payal correctly says, that are landing in other places as debates about exclusion and injustice based on class and caste and place of origin. So we look at two types of problem, as, as Senai described actually, inclusion problems and exclusion problems. So examples of inclusion problems that we're seeing particularly focus around migration, actually. Um, predictive technologies are being used to target migration control um, because there's a nice ready-made discourse about securitization and about high-income country security. Which, which is very open to technology vendors who want to sell products to policymakers. Back in 2015, I was at a meeting on humanitarian data here in the Netherlands, and I was approached by this very senior Microsoft executive who thought I might be a policymaker. And he explained the company was making proposals to European police and government authorities to use its new Azure AI, which is now quite an old system, which can analyze texts and images and video and speech, looking for particular patterns. So again, this is like five years ago, but it was really interesting the way that his description of the system reproduced the carceral logics that are getting critiqued now, particularly in America, but also in Europe. So he said that the way they envisage the system being tested would be on Syrian refugees waiting at the Hungarian border to be allowed into the EU. And that you could analyze all of their social media posts and video posts to try and figure out what their future mobility plans were and to feed that to European border authorities. And the pitch he made was literally this. He said, a refugee camp is essentially something you can treat as a prison for analytical purposes. People will eventually come out and the aim is then to track them, to know what they're doing and to prevent them from offending again. And he's talking about Syrian refugees who were at that point freezing and starving to death on the Hungarian border in 2015. So this was both shocking and kind of illuminating for me because it really made that connection between, you know, classic carceral logics processed through an American tech firm and how that gets translated into different places around the world. Another example of this is interesting actually in Zimbabwe. I'm sure you're aware of this, but 
Back in 2018, a Chinese-based company called Cloudwalk signed a deal to provide the government of Zimbabwe with a biometrically enabled civil registration system, so basically a national ID database. They, they would use it to monitor all their transportation hubs in Zimbabwe and to create this facial ID database for the country, which, to which they would then link welfare and law enforcement records. And in return, the Chinese company got the database of the faces of all the Zimbabweans registered in the civil registration system as training data, which then improves that company's ability to recognize dark-skinned faces and positions it for the worldwide predictive policing market and various other markets, but particularly, I would imagine, the predictive policing market. So these are problems of inclusion. Problems of exclusion we also see. For instance, when the Kenyan biometric ID system, which is known there as Huduma number, was the subject of a court case because the registration process itself, like the move to a digital registration process and to biometrics, was taken as a chance to exclude the Nubian population in Kenya who have disputed citizenship because they're historically an immigrant population and they're still seen as outsiders. And so this relates more to Payal's description of sort of class and caste at work on the, on the domestic level, which wouldn't be recognized as racism in the sense in which sort of racist AI is being analyzed right now, but which follows very similar dynamics. You can definitely relate it across contexts. And then we see some really weird intersections as well, where all of these things are in play together. For instance, there was recently a court case against the University of Amsterdam for using online proctoring software, which I found really interesting. We've, all of the law schools have stopped using it because it's clearly illegal. <laughs> across the Netherlands, but, but other faculties, particularly science parks, are still using it. And what we thought about at Tilburg was that this brings together various different sort of problems with, with inclusion and exclusion in AI, because the aim is to do remote fraud detection during exams, and it's based on characteristics of the person and of the room, as the computer camera can see them. And the system is radically more likely to predict fraud, to flag someone for fraud and get someone investigated if that person has disrupted connectivity or if there are people entering and exiting their workspace. So when lockdown happened, Dutch students often moved home and took their exams at their parents' houses in a nice safe room where no one was going to come in and out while they were taking their exams. They didn't get flagged and they had good connectivity. If you're, for instance, an Indonesian student and you've gone home to Indonesia, then it's likely there's more family members kicking around the house while you're trying to take your exam. It's less likely that you have a dedicated space for you to work on your law degree. And you'll also have less good connectivity. And so statistically, you're massively more likely to get flagged. And this was interestingly not taken into account at all in the court case, as far as I could tell. They were interested in privacy and in data protection, which does not cover any of this. The only way that data protection has intersected with any of this is when the European Data Protection Supervisor said that surveilling migrants through their social media postings was illegal based on discriminating against people as a group, which was interesting. This relates to the idea of group privacy, which I've been working on for a few years. And it's interesting that the EU um, legal authorities are taking up the idea of discriminating against people based on group characteristics as important in data protection. And that's one possible way to combat some of this. And with that, I will join the main discussion. Thank you very much. Thanks, Lynette. Thanks for uh, also commenting on both speakers. What I first would like to do is to get back to Payal's comment about the focus of the webinar and go and ask Senai to respond from the perspective of an AI expert on how to involve intersectional approaches in AI. Thanks for a very interesting uh, presentations. 
let me go back uh, a few steps. Civic AI Lab has recently been launched. It's uh, part of the ECAI ecosystem, and ECAI is the National Innovation Center for AI, which is an ecosystem of labs where private-public cooperations are done in the field of technology. Most of these labs and cooperations are at the industry level. In the case of Civic AI Lab, the focus is on, on society and societal challenges with partners like the municipality in Amsterdam and also the Ministry of Interior Affairs. And the aim is to develop AI technologies that help one, uncover inequalities in society, in the city, through AI, some inequalities that have been caused by others that have not been caused by AI, but have a historical basis. And the other aim is to design new technologies that create new pathways to equal opportunity. That's a more proactive manner. And we focus on a number of domains. We focus on inequality in education, in well-being, in health, in mobility. There's mobility poverty and mobility inequality in, in the city, in Amsterdam, and lots of other places. And on environmental issues. So those are the, the domains that we look at. And we have a number of projects that focus, one, on data and data representations. Do we have enough data to represent the different people, the different communities in the city. We have projects that focus not on data, but on analyzing the data, creating measures, fairness measures. And we have projects that work on application of AI technology algorithms in, in ways that are not one size fits all, but try to tailor the different needs and talents in, in communities. In one of the projects, the project focuses on fairness. The focus is on trying to incorporate fairness measures that don't only have a mathematical or physical basis, but also take into account social aspects. So in this project, we try to build fairness measures that take into account, for example, intersectionality theory, rather than thinking in terms of mathematical distances from, for example, the norm. We can also take into account who are the people that we take distances off to the norm. Is this man, black, young, and so on. And we try to take this intersectional perspective on taking measures in, in, in data. So the intersectionality theory is part of one of the projects that we have in Civic Island. Thanks. As a follow-up question, I'm going to include a question from the audience, which is about um, the co-creation idea. And I think it links to what you just said. So this is how would power inequalities between stakeholders in co-creation processes be account accounted for? So in these processes that you just described, so there's the, you know, the intent to include people's voices and stakes, but how do you, yeah, how do you take into account also the dynamics between the different stakeholders? I think that is the thought behind that question. Thank you for the question, An interesting question. I think apart from research, another very important aspect is education. And I say that because it's through education that we can reach the young kids that might be interested in, in, in technology and that might be able to, to get rid of power inequalities. Power inequalities exist and they won't go away easily. But if we invest in the future, we might be able to reduce them. At the moment, it's the big tech companies like Facebook and Google that create a lot of new technology. And one of the things that they try to convey is the thought that they're 
so big, so powerful that you better join them because they're too big to fill and citizens are too small to matter, right? And this way of thinking, that's a dangerous way of thinking and which should be opposed to education. Both Google and Facebook started small with young people that have creative thoughts and had the opportunity to get to, uh, into education and build things from that. There are three million, three billion kids in this world. If we educate them, like we teach them to write and read, we can also teach them to think algorithmically or even develop algorithms, programming and so on. This will, in the long run, be needed to deal with power inequalities. At the moment, we do it incrementally. Thanks. Moving back to um, Payal and Lynette. So how, what do you think about those inclusive tech approaches if you think about the projects that you have studied? So, all right, so a couple of things is, I think we have an intuitive positive response to the term inclusivity and an intuitive negative response towards exclusion, right? So inclusion is all about the kumbaya, bringing people together, you know, communities together. Let's not leave anyone out. You know, the old, you know, nobody should be left behind. Whereas exclusion is, seems very violating, very oppressive. And so you want to be part of these systems, including technological systems. But I find them to be this whole notion of innately positive and innately negative sort of connotations of inclusion and exclusion are not useful because, you know, for example, it, for the majority of the world's people who happen to be low income, you know, users often for the first time, they are basically not experiencing data glut. Actually, they are, for the most part, invisible. So the conversation is less important, in fact, for them about privacy and more about are they visible? Can they be counted? Or do they exist in the systems? And also, more importantly, the more data you have, the more quality data you can get and thereby more accurate or predictive analytics. But what's more important is, for example, as Senez brings up about the facial recognition system, my concern is not so much about whether, yes, of course, it's whether it is a particular identity is being included or excluded, and thereby that's good or bad. I would actually go a step further is what was that system built for? What is the outcome that is desired? And in which case, similar to my context on the biometric identity project, that per se is not a negative or positive thing because it's playing out in very complex and different ways amongst different populations, different industries. There is a lot of like different sort of intersecting of these components. And so it is very useful to demoralize the systems of inclusion and exclusion and not have them linked to these sort of, you know, simplistic rubrics of the positive and the negative. And the other is about putting the identity at the center as much as the economics, the political economy. For example, right, the trade war going on between, you know, China and the US, where it's all about creating a clean system, as has been declared right now, that you are either with us or against us, and thereby the American systems of data, datafication are the clean systems and the unclean, which by the way evokes a lot of pollution metaphors, which are evoked from the car system about certain kinds of entire nations and people like the Chinese 
are going to pollute our clean system. So it's not just an individual as a black person or a, it goes in terms of a bigger system, which actually people are attributing as uh, to xenophobia. But I think that's a sort of misleading of this conversation. It's not xenophobia. It's about, again, economics. It's all about monopolies. It's all about you know, entrenching your monopolies of wealth and power and using these lens as a way of sort of uh, sentimentalizing, leveraging on patriotism and all these other emotions to get a system which can continue to control data, people, and power, right? So I'm, I'm sure Lynette has more to say, particularly because she's been working on these, you know, in very specific ways. Yeah, so I agree. I mean, I really see two parallel worlds at work here, and I want both of them to exist, right? There's a world of tech developers who are seeking like positive ways to use tech and to fight battles using technology. And they're engaged in these really profound discussions around data literacy and empowerment through education and inclusive tech development. So that's one entire field. Separately, there's a different field that discusses issues about corporate agglomeration of power on the global level and that looks at how that power affects what tech can be developed and scaled up and used on the population level. So when we look at big tech, corporations negotiate with states as if they themselves were states at this point. They're welcomed as technology research funders along with the state in academia, and they're welcomed as venture capitalists determining which startups can succeed. So where they invest determines what type of tech can get developed, where information lives, whose cloud, whether it's the cloud or local, where data gets nationalized and localized, what tech can get developed and applied on a general level. So I think if we wanna think about justice and about what an anti-racist technology development paradigm could look like, we need to think about both stimulating power from the bottom up, as I was describing, and also controlling power from the top down and thinking about the relationship between technology providers and the state. So I think both are really important but they do different jobs and we shouldn't conflate them. Thanks, Lynette. It's uh, unfortunate that we don't have much time left. Otherwise we could have talked about uh, the new university partner, uh, Huawei, as like a partner uh, to work on AI. Um, do that, because that would be great. We can, yeah, let's schedule the next event and we can talk about yes. the data sets that uh, are collected in, uh, in Uganda. Um, let's have a derailing public discussion. It's going to be another public discussion next time. So part this. I need to pay attention to the questions in the chat. I'm going to read up these last two questions. And after that, I need to close the session. So one question, uh, a question for all the presenters. In many places in Europe, it can be really difficult to obtain racially disaggregated data. While race is not the same in Europe as in the US, this still seems deeply problematic for conducting studies for developing AI that manage racial diversity well in facial recognition and other applications. How can we do this well in Europe, given the, the dearth of population level data on race? And then the next question, if education would be the best antidote against corporate power, I think the university should be in a better shape than it is. Okay, so that is a comment, and as we just decided, that is going to be scheduled in the next session. The question was for all the presenters, but it seems to be more like a question for Senai. So 
it can be difficult to obtain racially disaggregated data. How can we do this well in Europe? In the end, I still believe it's hugely important that we keep cooperating, keep cooperating, keep working in diverse groups that see where inequalities arise and take that as a first step to solve inequalities. I don't think that we will be able to get to databases that are fully representative and where there's no inequality or that do not propagate in, in, in the, that will arise. It's also good to focus on locality, right? I see here Europe. Why Europe? Why not focus on data aggregation at the community level and ask people to, to engage not only in data collection, but also in creating algorithms, seeing what the value is that people that give their data get back for it, right? So it's, it's not an easy question to answer, but co-creation, cooperation, including civil society, including citizens as much as possible in taking ownership in creating the new world that we're building. I'd like to add to that is just that, you know, it's not just co-creation, it's also co-option. And the reason I bring this up is to the question that was asked is we need to understand the deep historical politics of data gathering. It goes back to the time of surveying, okay? And there is a real ethical dilemma. If I capture certain demographics to track them, right? We're talking about the basic going to, from, you know, in the olden days, surveying of exactly your behaviors, your tastes, your wants, et cetera, corporate surveillance, you know, market-based research to state surveillance, there is a fear of, of course, uh, you know, classic as it is, the Nazi time where they were able to leverage on that to be extraordinarily effective in separating, you know, the Jews from the non-Jews. For example, in India, you know, there's been accusations of how come during a certain riots is that how come the mob was able to be very effective in Gujarat to go at Muslim households. How did they know they were Muslim households? And there was, there was a stated belief that the government was in complicity with the communities which were out to sort of lynch certain religious groups. So I think we have to be careful of what we ask for. It's really important for us to ask, why do we want this data? And also, can we not, you know, the ideal scenario is not to have this data because we should be able to have systems which are flexible enough to be allowing for different groups to thrive, right? This is the ideal scenario. And what I am afraid is that these data structures could be instrumentalized against the very communities that it was intended to help. And so this has been, we are not gonna resolve it now. It wasn't resolved in the past. And we've just now got amplified forms of surveying and you know, other older forms of data collection, which brings us back to that we have to be very, very careful what we ask for. And just a quick comment on the education, as I absolutely agree that you know, education can be the best antidote, except guess what? We are corporatizing education in the Netherlands, and we know it's gonna be the next uh, panel, but it is very much corporatized, and it's not just Netherlands alone, right? Very teaching, the kind of material we choose, the kind of the burnouts and all of this is emblematic of sort of corporatized worldview of what the education system has come to be and very little of the public in the public education. So 
well, I'm not sure it's an antidote until we sort of reclaim the public of public education. That could also be part of education, learning to reclaim. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Lynette, do you want to add something to this discussion? I think that Payal and Sinai have addressed it really well. Um, I, I would, I guess, add that I think we're coming together around the idea of participatory methodologies and research being really useful. And this is, as Payal would say, quite an old trope. And <laughs> we keep coming back to how we should probably listen to individuals about how technology affects them. And we should collect information from them about what they would like technology to do and how they would like it to be governed. And that's the kind of research that my project is trying to do. It's super hard. It's, it's really painstaking and it takes a really long time. And I think we need more work of the kind that we're discussing on this call today. Okay, thank you very much. I want to thank our speakers. It was very insightful to hear your perspectives. And I also hope that we can continue these conversations after, uh, after this. And also the co-organizers of the webinar series, Monica Baptist, Victoria Andersman, Alvarez, Marike de Goede, Thomas Poel, and Olaf Veldhuis. And I think I'm ready to end this meeting. You can find more on digitalcultures.org. Thank you.